This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. My guest is entertainer, actor, and singer Jason Grah, whom I interviewed while he and Broadway performer Faith Prince were at Feinstein's at the Nico in San Francisco. Jason's credits include the original cast of Forever Plaid, a stint as the wizard in the national tour of Wicked, guest appearances on several TV shows, including Friends, and appearances on and off Broadway in regional theaters and with symphony orchestras. This interview was recorded using Zencaster on April 10th, 2023. Jason Grah, how did you and Faith Prince come to do a show together? Well, Faith and I have quite a history, Richard. And by the way, thank you for having me. We have uh, quite a history, none of which I can talk about right now. Just kidding. We met in college, and we talk about all uh, all about this in our show. So I won't, you know, divulge all the uh, details. But um, we met in college at Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music in Ohio, and we were both musical theater majors. That was the beginning of our long platonic love affair. When you met, it was just in a class? No, I mean, it was the whole conservatory where there were lots of classes. To be a musical theater major was an event. I don't really look at it as classes per se, but uh, we actually met in the lunchroom. All I can tell you is that I carried her tray to be bussed afterwards because I was that kind of a guy. (laughs) But we got along really well. We got along really well. When you're going there, obviously, there's no way of knowing if you'll even stay in the field. So you had no idea. At what point did you your paths cross again afterward? Well, first of all, I think Faith and I both knew that we were going to stay in the field. And that was that was one of the great things about going to Cincinnati Conservatory. At that time, there were, you know, just a handful of universities that even had a musical theater program. Now, so many do, but uh, Cincinnati led the pack, Carnegie Mellon and Boston Conservatory and um, Michigan. We were one of the first, if not the first, to have a musical theater major. Anyway, so all of us that were accepted, it was a small department of musical theater, and the people that were accepted, I think practically everybody went on to New York or went on to be in the business. It was great. Our, my entire graduating class and I moved to New York City, and I think there were eight of us. Are any of the other people names that we would know? Gosh, yes. Uh, Jan Horvath was in my class, and she was in the original Phantom of the Opera and Bob Fosse's Sweet Charity and Sting, Three Penny Opera, and Scott Willis. He was my college roommate, and he just did American in Paris. Well, just, I don't know, it closed several years ago, but... Uh, he did American in Paris, Crazy for You, 42nd Street, and Iris Revson did Merlin with Cheetah Rivera, and um, a lot of people. And, and then while I was there, Steve Flaherty, the composer who wrote Ragtime and many spectacular shows, my favorite show, Once on this Island, he was there. He was two years younger than myself, actually. I mean, the whole conservatory really produced a lot of very successful Broadway and musical theater careers. Jason Grau, when you came to New York, all of you together, 
did you room together? Did you, how did that work? Because I mean, all these people from Cincinnati and you originally grew up in Tulsa and Faith Prince grew up, I guess, in Virginia. Mm-hmm. So you were coming to the big city, all of you together. Uh, did you room together? Did you keep touch? Did you meet every week to get beers? We did all of the above. Well, first of all, I'll say, you know, Faith was a year ahead of me. So she had an apartment on West 98th Street with Kim Criswell, and they were both graduates right uh, the year before me. And so I'll, I stayed at their place. I sublet their apartment for a few months. Uh, I sublet and shared a futon with with one of my classmates, Iris Revson. <laughs> and uh, on 57th Street, we shared a studio apartment. That was tight. <laughs> there was a restaurant called Dallas Barbecue. I think then it was called the Swiss Chalet. And uh, you could go and get a half a chicken, cornbread, and a baked potato for four ninety five, and so and that was on Seventy Second Street between Columbus and Central Park. So a lot of us met there, and saved money and went to the Swiss Chalet. I think Dallas Barbecue still uh, exists now. It's kind of like a huge restaurant all over town. But yes, we all. It was a really, really great support group and a great network of people and friends. And we all helped each other through the years. And I have to say most every show that I've done since then, there's always somebody who went to the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music uh, besides me in the show. When that was happening, do you remember your very first Broadway show, the one you went to? And what was your first audition? So the first Broadway show that I ever saw was on the 20th century. I remember that, yeah. It was starred Madeline Kahn and John Cullum and Imogene Coco and Kevin Klein. And Madeline Kahn left really early on. And so I didn't see her. I saw Judy Kay. And it was a great first Broadway show. Cy Coleman uh, and Comden and Green wrote the score. And oh my God, it was the perfect first Broadway show to see. It was dazzling. And I worked with Judy Kay through the years a lot. And I played opposite her a lot. And I was always (laughs) completely intimidated and completely in awe and completely in love with her and everything I did. So that was the first Broadway show I saw. The first Broadway uh, show that I got, unfortunately, it was not quite as good as on the 20th century, Richard. That was Do Black Patent Leather Shoes Really Reflect Up? Oh, that's right. You talk about that in uh, your one-man show, right? I'm sure I do. Just saying the title takes up 10 minutes. Well, what was the first one you auditioned for? Do you remember? Oh, well, the first Broadway show that I auditioned for, yes, was the sequel to Bye Bye Birdie. Oh, Bring Back Birdie, right. Bring Back Birdie, you got it. That didn't last long. That did not last long. Uh, And I had three callbacks. And I was so excited about it. And Charles Strauss and I think it was Lee Adams. I can't remember who directed it, but it was a big director. And um, I just kept getting called back. And I, this was the first audition I went to. And I thought I was going to get it. And they lined us up at the final callback on a Broadway stage, like chorus line. And we all had to stand there. And we all had to step out of the line and say what our Broadway credits were. And I had no Broadway credits. I've been in town like two weeks. And I was there with the whole cast of West Side Story, who that had been running for a while. So they all came out and 
said, you know, I play riff at West Side Story at the Minskoff Theater on Broadway. And, blah, blah, blah. and so I came out and said, well, I played Chino at the Oklahoma City Lyric Theater. I thought that was so funny, but they did not. And I got cut. <laughs> Do you remember that year? What year it was? Uh, yes, that was 1980. I moved uh, to New York in the fall of 1980. So at that point, I'm trying to remember, I guess Sweeney Todd was still playing on Broadway, right? I think so, yes. Did you get to see that with uh, the original cast? I did. That I saw in 1979. I went to an, I, I flew into New York for an audition for that West Side Story, and I, I got to see it. It was magnificent. Did you ever meet Angela Lansbury? I did. I did. That was a thrill. Did you? Uh, no, I never met her. No. Man, she was just a class act all the way. I met her, and this sounds so name-droppy, but, you know, what can I say? Uh, I went to Jerry Herman's uh, 70th birthday party, and he threw it at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and it was a brunch. It was like a birthday brunch, and... B. Arthur and Angela Lansbury and Lorna Luft and Michael Feinstein and Karen Morrow and Pedro Harrow. We were all at this party because I had worked very closely with Jerry Herman uh, and I was on tour with him doing a, a review of his work and we were traveling all over the country. So I was in this circle and uh, Angela came up to me and said, I just want you to know that you know, because Jerry had been having some health issues before we went on tour. And she said, I was so worried about Jerry and his health, and I didn't think he was going to be with us long. And she said, I have to tell you, working in this show, Hello, Jerry, and traveling the country with you and Karen Morrow and Paige O'Hara and Don Pippen, she said, it's given him a new lease on life. I've never seen him happier and healthier and she said, I'm just so grateful for your show and for you all. And I said, well, I'm grateful for everything about you. So thank you. Wow. That's that's pretty awesome. I know. Jason Grah, getting back to your work with Faith Prince, at that particular time in the 80s, in those early days when you were just starting out, what was she doing around the same time that you were auditioning and getting into shows like Black Patent Leather? Shoes really reflect up. Well, because that sounds kind of kinky, just that I was getting into Black Patent Leather. I had to say the whole title, Richard. You know, back then, and Faith and I were talking about this, you know, it wasn't that cool to be young in New York in the 80s. Like now the shows are so filled with young people and it wasn't that cool to be in your 20s, especially your early 20s. There were very few shows for that age group uh, when we got to New York. Merrily We Roll Along was one of them. Do Black Patent Leather Shoes Really Reflect Up was another, you know, but it wasn't the same climate as it is today. And so basically what you wanted to do was to get experience and to build your resume. And so Faith did, she did her time in Summerstock and Dinner Theater and off, off Broadway and off Broadway. And that's what I did. I think Faith was one of my dates or one of my friends. Oh, Vicki Lewis, um, 
also went to school with us. She, she was uh, behind me a year and she and I both did patent leather shoes together. And so I think faith was Vicky's date to our opening night of patent leather shoes. But, um, so, you know, she was busy in that world and she and I crossed paths three times, uh, off Broadway. And we did, uh, Olympus on my mind together, which was kind of a hit uh, it ran like nine months and Faith left early because she got a better gig, but she opened the show and she was magnificent. And uh, have you heard of that show, Richard? I know of it because back in the 80s, for reasons I don't want to go into, I was briefly friends with Joyce DeWitt of Three's Company. And she afterward was in that very same show, Olympus on My Mind. Yes. Well, and she did it with me down at the Burt Reynolds Jupiter Theater. That's where she did it because we, after we did it, we did it off, off Broadway. Then we moved to off Broadway and then, then it went to the Burt Reynolds Jupiter theater and they wanted to bring it to LA, but it didn't happen. Then we did an album and Joyce played Faith's part and they had Joyce DeWitt uh, do the recording as opposed to Faith which I thought was a curious choice. But um, I loved working with Joyce DeWitt. She told me that we had very similar comic styles. I was taken aback. I was like, first of all, my father, who was a brilliant engineer, his favorite show on television was Three's Company. And I was like, really, Dad? And he was from Denmark, and he just loved it. And it wasn't until I worked with Joyce DeWitt that my father thought that I had made it in show business. She once visited up here. She was friends with my friends. That's how I knew her. I wasn't that good friends with her. But we went on a tour of Peru together. We went on a, a uh, helicopter ride together, and it was in a paper bag, but I threw up in her lap. Uh <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. God. <laughs> you know, not too many people have thrown oh. up into the lap of uh, Joyce DeWitt. We were stuck together in um, a town in on the border of Peru and Brazil, I think, uh, because we couldn't get out because of the weather, and she organized a talent show down there. Yeah, she was fun. She, I liked her. I liked her. Yeah, I was a little, I questioned the producers of like, if you can get Faith Prince for your original cast recording, why not go with her? And then, you know, why would you go with Joyce DeWitt, you know, not a known musical theater star at that time, um, you know, to do the album. So I, I was always sorry that Faith wasn't on that album because Faith was magnificent in this part. Jason Grah, back to Faith. When did you get together and decide to do your show, The Prince and the Showboy? Well, that was all thanks to 42nd Street Moon in San Francisco. We were both cast to do a gala for them at one of the theaters. I can't remember which theater it was. Alcatraz, maybe? Is there Alcatraz Theater? Alcazar. Alcazar. Thank you. Very close to Alcatraz, but not really. Um, yeah, so they did a gala there, and it was a, uh, a tribute to Jerry Herman, the aforementioned Jerry Herman. And Faith and I were both uh, hired separately to be the guest stars. And we hadn't seen each other in a long time. And she had moved out to California and I was in, out here in LA. And so we reunited 
And we just, sparks ignited. And uh, we were so happy to see each other. And it had been, you know, we had kind of crossed paths here and there, but hadn't really uh, connected in a major way until that moment. And they had advertised for it. I think it was on Playbill Online or something. And they announced that the two of us were going to be doing this gala. And a temple in New York contacted us and said, oh, we see that you and Faith have a show together. Do you have a show together? We'd love to hire you uh, for the Temple Betora in, uh, you know, Westchester, New York. And we didn't really have a show together, but we said, sure, <laughs> we got a show. And then we put one together and we premiered it at the Temple Betora. And then the rest is history. We, uh, We've been doing it everywhere. We were one of the opening acts at uh, 54 Below, and we ran there for a week. And then uh, we've done it all over the country uh, for the last, you know, 10 years or so. And um, I'm telling you, it's just been one of the greatest gifts of my life. I love her so much. I'm so proud to be in her company. I love, she's so smart and she's game for anything. No is not really in her vocabulary, which is not in mine either. So, you know, we'll try anything. We'll throw it against the wall. And if it sticks, we keep it, you know. And I just love working with her. I find her fearless. And, you know, and then if something doesn't work, she's the first to say, okay, that let's go to, you know, plan B. But she's up to my game. And uh, I'm, I'm really, I just cherish every moment that we have together. Is this show that's going to be on this weekend, is that show basically the same show or is it different? It's got some of the same material in it uh, because we live in two different cities now. So uh, we don't get to see each other all the time. But we have like, I think we've got like some of the same duets and then uh, most of our solo stuff has changed. So there's a different kind of arc to the whole show and the stories are different and things like that. But there, yes, there are certain... Uh, signposts is that what we call them uh you know certain kind of a, a certain foundation that we have that we've kept but i would say you know i'd say a good two-thirds is probably different i probably asked you this the last time we talked but in shows like this how much is ad lib we both love to ad lib we both love to talk but we both come from the same uh background we're both comic actors, you know, so we like to have a safety net of what we're going to be saying. So we, we follow a kind of a, nothing's written down, but we do follow a certain kind of template, a certain kind of script. Do you hear my dog barking in the background? Okay. I, I hope that's not too distracting. That's Murray, the terrier who's barking in the other, it's dog walking time in my neighborhood in LA. But, uh, so he barks at all the dogs walking by, but, um, we, we know what the journey is going to be, and we kind of have our basic pattern kind of figured out, even though none of it's written down. And then we can play within that. Because I, I like to be off the cuff, and she certainly likes to. And, and one of the things I love about cabaret that you can't do so much in the theater is you can really be in the moment. And if something pops up, Somebody in the audience does something, the music director does something, Faith says something, you know, whatever happens, you know, you can acknowledge that and and be in the moment. And I love that. Getting back to this idea of ad-libbing, you've been 
and I know Faith, God, when I went to IMDb, I saw the number of TV shows she's been in. And you've been a guest star in quotes on a lot of TV shows. In those shows, when you're just doing, you know, one day's work or something, is there any room for ad-libbing? Is there any room for being spontaneous? Not a lot, because you kind of got to hit your marks and the cameras have a cue line that they got to move around to. And it's pretty specific. I think there's certain shows that depend on ad-libbing, you know, but the, the shows that I've done, you had to really stick to the script. And it's just, you go in, do your script, go out, and then they send you a paycheck. <laughs> well, if you put it that way, yes. It seems sometimes when I talk to actors uh, over the years that most of that, unless you're actually a regular on a show, most of that is just there so that you can do theater and cabaret and you don't have to worry as much financially. You know, I, I came from New York where I was used to doing eight shows a week and I was in New York for 16 years. And um, I came out to do a theater piece out here, uh, L.A., to do Forbidden Hollywood and by the guy who wrote Forbidden Broadway. And, you know, it was like an in-house industrial for L.A. because it was all about L.A. And it was it was, you know, a send up of movies and all the movies that were opening at the time. And and so all the casting people came out and we were all cast the whole cast that we got a lot of TV and I got a pilot within the first year I was here. And, you know, every it was just like this is amazing. So I loved it because yes, the money was great and you had your weekends off and you had your nights free most of the time. And yeah, you know, and you would just do much less work, make more money and everybody saw you all over the country. So, you know, the things that people stopped me in the street for, Oh my God, I saw you on friends. Well, friends was four days of work. And, you know, I think I had eight lines on it, but more people saw that than ever saw Do Black Patent Leather Shoes really reflect up. Jason Grah, you worked with David Hyde Pierce and the boys from Syracuse. How was that? Oh, he was the best. He was great. Uh, this was at the very beginning of his musical comedy career, apparently. And uh, he and I played twins. We were twins uh, identical twins. And we were both married to Leah Delaria. She scared the hell out of me, but, uh, she was really funny in the show. Um, but yeah, she was, she was wild. She was wild. You try to be the, the male force with Leah Delaria. It's impossible. But, uh, David was just generous, funny, try anything, very self-effacing. And I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, you know, he's a TV star and who knows if he's going to want to go on in musical theater and all that. And then he won a Tony Award for Curtains, you know, singing in a musical. So he really uh, developed his skill and was he was magnificent in Curtains. But I couldn't have loved him more. Everybody loves David I. Pierce. It's annoying, actually. During COVID, what were you doing? During COVID, I took a writing class that I also got Faith to do. We uh, we did it together for a year, and we both it was it was one of the lifelines of COVID. Our uh, friend Claudette Sutherland, who was the original Smitty in How to Succeed in Business without really trying in the '60s, Richard, she was Smitty, and um, 
she is a writer and a writing teacher and she lives out in LA and I've known her for years. And she said, you know, I want to get you in my class. I think you'd be really would love it. And I think we'd have fun together. And, and I was always going on the road and I never had a chance to do it. And then when COVID hit, she said, okay, I got you. You have nowhere to go. I know that. And so I said, you are so right. And I'm ready to do it. And, uh, and I got faith in there and we did it every Monday. We wrote, essays and memoirs and you know all these different kind of pieces and fiction and it just it was thrilling it was the shot of adrenaline that we were all missing during the quarantine you know that i mean that's just one of the things i love about the theater is the adrenaline rush of being terrified before going out on stage and the, that excitement and that thrill of of a live audience and and all of that and that was all gone and I'm telling you on the weekend before every Monday, and we only had about nine people in our class and they were all delightful and everybody was different, a TV writer and a, a you know, us actors and a, a therapist. And, you know, it was all different kind of people, but we were, you had to come up with something to read that you had written. And so we were all terrified. And then to read it and to watch the faces of people listening to your story, you know, on Zoom, I, I was wringing wet after every Monday writing class and, and Faith felt the same way, but it was a rush. It was really a rush and it was great. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I learned that writing is much harder than I thought it was. God, I saw the original production of How to Succeed. It was one of the first shows I saw. You did? That's amazing. Yeah, the very first show I saw was something called Destry Rides Again with Andy Griffith and Dolores Gray. Oh, my God, yeah. That was a flop. You know, flop is dependent upon whether it makes backs. It's not, as opposed to how long it ran. It ran long enough. It mm -hmm. ran about a year, I think. Something like that, yeah. It's a well-known title. I was nine years old, eight or nine years old, and my I had wanted to go to Broadway since I was like five, but my parents wouldn't take me. In my mother had a history. Uh, her first show was I Married an Angel. She was 14 years old. Oh, my God, you're kidding. But she would sit in the top balcony for like 15 cents or whatever it was, and then she would get the autographed afterward. Uh, so she was always heading downtown. They were in Washington Heights, I believe, or whatever it was called then. The original production of I Married an Angel? Yeah, with Vera Zarino. Yeah, that was her first show. Oh, my God. Spring is here. Why doesn't the breeze delight me? Spring is here. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I did a production of I Married an Angel off-Broadway, and I was the lead, and Marin Maisie played the angel, and now she is an angel. I told Sondheim about that and about my mother having seen the original Oklahoma as well and the original everything. He couldn't make it for an interview. He gave me his tickets for the first preview of A Little Night Music, um, the version with... Um, Catherine Zeta-Jones and Angela Lansbury. And we went, I took my mom to that. And afterwards, Sondheim asked for my mom's opinions. He didn't care about mine. <laughs> Until she gave him notes. What were her notes? One of them was that Catherine Zeta-Jones sang Send in the Clowns rather than acted it. 
And he said, we're working on that with her. And the other was that the character of the son, Henrik, was being played more too cartoon-like. He said, I agree, and we need to deal with that one, too. Wow. Your mother, smart lady. Yeah. She knew her musicals, that's for sure. That's amazing that Sondheim asked for her opinion. I think that's the greatest thing. I love that. He never asked for my opinion. Jason Grah, getting back to your career and some more serious issues, when you were in Tulsa, did you have any dealings with the MAGA people? Well, I'm sure I did, but I I didn't have any confrontations. I'm sure there were, you know, people around me, but uh you know, I did uh that's just like out of left field, Richard. <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> you lull people into a false sense of security and then all of a sudden you bring up MAGA. Well, I <laughs> Jesus. Uh, no, I had no, there was no, there was nothing uh, peculiar. There was, there, there was, you know, I, I had no kind of altercations with anybody. The one thing that I, the one moment I had was with uh, somebody, I was singing with uh, one of the symphonies there and one of the uh, people that I was working with uh, from Tulsa, I was walking in and there was a picture of a handgun, a pistol with a line through it on the door. And it was at a college. And I looked at that and went, oh God. I mean, I just could, that's not something we see in LA. You know, no guns allowed. It's like, no kidding. And so the fact that they had to have this in college saying you were not allowed to bring your handgun in this building. And I just, I made a comment. I just went, wow. And she said, well, you know, it's a school. We can't bring in guns. And I said, that should be a given that we shouldn't have guns on us or the fact that you even have to put it on there is so sad because that's the day and age that we're living in. And so we kind of danced around it a little bit. That was my only altercation uh, with, you know, because the absurdity of the gun laws right now is so gobsmacking. And this recent thing that just happened in Louisville is it just makes me sick to my stomach. And a friend of mine is working at the Actors Theater of Louisville, and he saw the whole shooting spree happen outside his window. That That is really hard to deal with. But no, I had no altercations whatsoever. That does bring up a, a question. Given what's going on in this country now, do actors, do performers have some kind of obligation in that regard? What do you think? Particularly with the emphasis on you know, destroying trans people. Yeah, I think we definitely can speak up. I don't know. I mean, I don't think it ever hurts to speak up. You know, I ha I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I have a lot of my friends are conservative. I don't want to alienate them. A lot of my in-laws are conservative, um, you know, and conservatives, you know, there's different forms of conservatism as there are different forms of liberalism. But I don't want to step on any toes because as an artist, you know, I, I go to all these places. I was in Nashville, Tennessee last summer, and I had a great time uh, with Liz Calloway. We did our show at the Performing Arts Center there. And, you know, now all the stuff that's going on in Tennessee, I just, I can't believe it. You know, like, okay, trans people and drag 
that's the problem with today. And you're going to put all your energy on that. And you're going to let the gun laws stay and make it even easier to get a gun. I, I, you know, I, it's so absurd to me, but I don't want to, I'm not an activist, but I will certainly speak up for it. But I also, I don't want to step on toes sometimes. This sounds wimpy, but I, you know, as a performer, I feel like I, I have to have some sort of neutrality because these people are going to be hiring me. I don't want to wuss out on this, but that's uh, my kind of philosophy about it. But I speak up when I need to speak up. That's fair. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's tough for anyone in the public eye to put their careers on the line unless you're actually going to be making a specific difference. Absolutely. And I, I feel like with social media, it's not, I have gone out on those limbs, you know, I mean, God knows I have, I have, you know, said many anti-Trump things on Facebook and, and I, I, I have, you know, and certainly with Black Lives Matter and all of those things, I go to bat for all of that. And I've marched and I've, you know, for Planned Parenthood and I give money and I've, you know, I say everything. I just, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm really thinking of social media most. I don't know that it changes anybody's mind. I don't know that, you know, you get on Facebook and you treat other people like idiots because they don't have the same beliefs as you do. I, I, I feel like... That's that's not what I use social media for. I'll go other places to try to make a difference. I will vote and I will give money to the cause and I will march and I will, you know, certain things. I will go onto Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and, you know, speak up for the cause. But I, I feel like berating um, other human beings for their beliefs, no matter how ridiculous I think their beliefs are. I just don't think that's going to do any good. And it only makes people dig in their heels more. So I, I don't like it when I see people doing it to my beliefs and it just makes me pissed off. So I don't want to do that. So that's why I try to go neutral. If I do speak up politically, it's often, you know, I try to do it in a humorous way. But I go about doing it in in ways that I can actually be of some help. For a lot of people, having given up on the fact that social media conversations don't change anyone's minds, minds can be changed one-on-one. And maybe they can be changed through music. I don't know. Well, I think so. I think so. I will say that when I see performers perform and I know... You know, now we just know about everybody's beliefs and the performers that were anti-vaxxers, you know, that get up and sing now. And I, I don't like them anymore. I'm like, Ugh, why do I want to listen to you? Well, I mean, all the beliefs, I don't want to know too much information about a performer when they're singing or acting or playing a role. I don't want to know everything of their beliefs. You know, I like to have kind of a neutral palate when I'm watching. And I, I kind of want them to feel that way about me too. Jason Grah, so you started and you were doing these shows. How did you get the gig for Forever Plaid, which changed your career? Yeah, that was my first hit show, which was thrilling to be in a hit show. I had done Stardust on Broadway. I had done that uh, off Broadway, and then um, we moved to Broadway. And it ran, you know, 100 whopping performances. 
But it was a really beautiful show. It was a tribute to Mitchell Parrish, who wrote the lyrics to Sophisticated Ladies and uh, Moonlight Serenade and uh, Stardust, of course, and uh, Sleigh Ride, Bell of the Ball, just uh, Deep Purple. It just on and on and on. And this was a tribute to him. It was like Sophisticated Ladies, but it was a smaller show. There were only six of us in the cast. You know, it was really charming. Probably should have stayed off Broadway where it got the most amazing reviews, but then uh, producers got excited about it and thinking it could be the next sophisticated lady, and it really wasn't. Anyway, I worked with the musical director who did all the vocal arrangements, and he was the conductor, James Raitt, and he was Bonnie Raitt's cousin and John Raitt's nephew, and he was a stunning man and funny and brilliantly talented and incredible with writing, you know, part singing and all this. There were some really tight, beautiful harmonies. And after we did Stardust, he kept talking about a show that he had worked on, that he was working on called Forever Plaid. And he said, you know, Jason, this is tailor made for you and you're tailor made for it. Um, it's about this, you know, four quirky weirdo guys. And there it's a four part harmony group. And it's hard harmonies and you can do tough harmony singing. And I sight read and he said, I think you've got the comedy and the music chops for this. And it was going to be trying out in New Jersey at the American stage company. So I went and auditioned and got it and it got horrible reviews, just horrible. We had done it as a two act play with music and uh, the reviews just killed it. And the poor producer, took his name off the show. He was like, well, this is going to go nowhere. <laughs> and, um, and so the writer, Stuart Ross, uh, called me and said, all right, I want to move this thing to, into Off-Broadway and we're going to try it out at this cabaret, uh, Paulson's, where Forbidden Broadway had run for years. And uh, it was called Steve McGraw's. At that point, they changed the name. And he said, he said, but I'm changing the concept. It's going to be a, you know, a lean 80 minutes, 90 minute show. I think it was 80, 85 minutes show. And um, he said, it's now going to be about a, a, a four guy singing group who are on their way to their first big gig at the airport fusel lounge. And they got killed by a busload of Catholic schoolgirls who were on their way to hear the Beatles concert. And the singing group all died in the car crash, but due to a hole in the ozone layer, they could come back to do the one concert that they never got to do in life. And that was the whole premise of Forever Plaid. And I listened to him and I went, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my life. Sign me up. At what point did you realize during rehearsals that you might actually have a hit here? Well, I realized when my college girlfriend, Vicki Lewis, I talked about before came to see the show and she was always very blunt with me about shows that I'd been in. <laughs> so she was always very honest and she came up to me and looked at me and her eyes were like saucers. And she went, Jason, this is amazing. <laughs> she was actually seemed shocked that I was in a hit. And I went, what? She goes, it's amazing. It's unbelievable. And that was like the first time that she came, I think, to the first show. I went, oh, well, I guess we got something here. And the audiences just loved it. 
we had uh, Gene Walsh came in. He was he was the producer of Driving Miss Daisy, uh, which he was a huge success. And he came in and took over uh, as our producer, and uh, it ran off Broadway for five years. And James Rate was the musical director for that. On all of the shows that you started, is there a point, or don't you know really know when the until the critics tell you? Is there a point where you kind of know it's not going to make it? Oh, I think so. But when you're working on any show, you know, like even do black patent leather shoes really reflect up? You know, I read the script and I thought, oh, good. I I didn't get it because it was a lot of Catholic jokes growing up in Catholic school. So I didn't get most of the jokes. Then we opened in Philadelphia. So I thought this isn't so good. My agents were like, do you want to do this? And everybody was kind of with a raised eyebrow. Then we opened in Philadelphia and it got really good reviews. And then I, you listened to the audience and it was a very Catholic audience. So they got all the jokes and they loved it. It was like a rock concert in Philadelphia. And so I started thinking, oh, this is good. And then my friends would come in from New York and go, eh, it's not really that good. And then we moved to Broadway and you, whatever you're doing, you just believe in, you know, even if you have a gut instinct, like, oh, I'm not sure this is good. When you start to do it, you, you believe that it's good. You have to, that's the only way to perform and to, you know, to make something work is you've, you've just got to believe in it with all your heart and soul. And so when we got to New York, I was hopeful. I was very hopeful. And it just got creamed by the critics, just creamed. But I realized, you know, whatever you're working on, you you have to believe in it in order to make it work. So finally, when you decide you're going to work on something, any negative thoughts, you kind of have to put in abeyance. Otherwise, you're part of the problem. Yes, very much so. Very much so. And I learned that lesson along the way because I did do some flop shows in the 80s. I did some really fun shows as well. But I learned like as an actor, it's there's, you know, and I've directed uh, through the years. I have certainly directed. And as an actor, I would come in with all this baggage and think, oh, that's not good. And this isn't good. And it would affect my work as an actor. I was surprised sometimes by certain shows that I thought were lousy and then they would get great reviews and other shows that I thought were amazing that would get lousy reviews. And I realized, you know what? All I can do is my part of this show. And then I'm going to let somebody else take care of all the rest. They don't need all my opinions. They don't need my, you know, my views. They just need me to step up with this character that I have been cast to play. And that's a great relief. (laughs) It's a great relief for me. I'm sure it's a great relief for some of the directors I've worked with. And uh, that really has been probably one of the biggest life lessons I've learned in the theater. If you're doing a show for like six months, what kind of things do you do during a show to kind of keep yourself interested in something that you've done so many times? Well, because, you know, I hadn't been in a lot of hit shows uh, and so when Forever Plant opened, after like nine months, I was getting twitchy and I was just like, you know, I was adding bits. I drive directors crazy because I'm just like, I want more laughs. I'm always trying to go for, you know, more laughs. And so sometimes that's not what the director wants, Richard. You know, I would entertain myself and try to find new ways of being creative. And sometimes, you know, I would... Uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> get reprimanded for that. But I I left Forever Plaid after a year. The other guys stayed for years doing Forever Plaid. I mean, that title, they meant it, Forever Plaid. And after a year, I was like, that was great. Time to move on. And um, I left. But, uh, you know, I did Ragtime in L.A. for a year. I did Wicked for a year and a half. I don't know. They were such big, mega hit shows. And, you know, you can't you can't play too much. You know, you got to you got to stay within the the realm of the storytelling. So you have to be pretty disciplined. You you find rhythms. It changes as your mood changes. You know, every performance is different because the audience is different. Your mood is different. You're hyper, you're tired, you're cranky, you're feeling great, you know. Well, what about the audience? How aware are you during a show, not a cabaret show where you're actually watching the audience and then you know whether everything's hitting or missing or what's going on, but in a show like Wicked or A Grand Night for Singing or Ragtime, how aware are you with the audience set further back? Well, in some ways, I love it because you've got the freedom, you've got air, you know, they're not on top of you. So you can create and, and, and not feel like you're catering to them. You know, it's really easy to have that fourth wall and just be doing your work with space. I love what you just said. Uh, this is exactly why I love cabaret is because you can gauge everything. You know, if you're the joke flopped, you know, if a joke is a hit, the audience, it's so immediate. I, find that thrilling. I, I, I find cabaret more thrilling than the theater in that way because it's so immediate. So I, I, I like playing off the audience. But uh, in shows like Wicked, you know, where so often the, the response is so huge and so great, you know, it's fun. It, it was like a it was like a rock concert doing Wicked. We did it in L.A. for 10 weeks and every night was just it was, you know, a thrill and screaming and laughing. And, the, you know, they're listening. And, and every night was like an opening night. It was amazing. Then we went to Utah for five weeks after that. And it was a big hit in Salt Lake City. But the, it was such a different audience. They were really quiet and very respectful and, uh, you know, applauded and, you know, politely. And after, we thought, oh, my God, we're just flopping. They hate us. And there was always a line, an autograph line outside the stage door afterwards. And they, so many people said, we've never heard Salt Lake City audiences be so zany and so out there. And I was like, oh, my God, really? <laughs> Jason Gross, how was it working with Frank Galati on uh, Ragtime? I interviewed him once, and um, he was great. Oh, man, he was the greatest, isn't he? Wasn't he? He was a guru. He was Buddha. I just, he was so wise. His note sessions were works of art. Sometimes, like, you know, annoyingly so. Like, I would ask, like, I'm sorry, am I, is Houdini supposed to cross left here? And then he would give, like, a 15-minute dissertation on why Houdini would cross left. You know, everything was so thought out and so smart. And he took care of his actors on stage. He really, really cared uh, about everybody. I loved him. I was so thrilled to get to work with him on that. We we worked uh, while the show was still in development, uh, the L.A. company opened. So we were the Broadway company hadn't opened yet. They were in Toronto 
And they decided, uh, Garth Drabinsky decided to open an LA company before the Broadway company to open six months before. And I think that kind of backfired on him because we kind of stole the thunder. And I think the Broadway company was annoyed and we got all the national reviews and it got all the press. And then by the time it opened on Broadway, the critics were waiting. <laughs> act one is much better than act two. And I remember during intermission, all of us were completely blown away by it. I mean, we left the show happy, but but it's one of those shows where act one is so perfect. That's so interesting you say that because I agree. They had this section in act two, the Atlantic City section, and they really, really were working on that. And they worked on it up in Toronto and they worked on it in LA and they built a new song around uh, Evelyn Nesbitt and Harry Houdini. And it was like a whole Fosse Hat and Cane number. And it was fun. It was really exciting to work on with Graziella Danielle. And then they ended up cutting it. And Graziella came up and said, Jason, please do not. And, and Susan Wood, who was playing uh, Evelyn Nesbitt, she, she said to us, please do not think that this is anything personal, that we cut your big duet and we're putting uh, this reprise. She said, we have a perfect act one and act two is driving us all crazy and we're trying to figure it out and we're trying to, you know, make things work and make the storytelling clear. And she said, we thought that song, a new song would make the whole section work. And she said, it just isn't. And, and so we're, we continue to work on it. And she was, she is an incredible human being and was an amazing and still is an amazing director, choreographer, Anyway, but she had said that as well. I mean, it, it really is one of the most perfect act ones. Do you find that, though, a lot in musical theater? It seems like there's a lot of great act ones and act two don't always measure up. In looking at shows with perfect act ones, Sunday in the Park with George is an example, a really strong example. Carousel is another example where act one just sends you off an intermission sky high, and then you come back, and act two is never quite figured out. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, subliminal, because if you have a lousy act one, then you're not going to come back at intermission. Or you'll be, you won't have high expectations if you do. Exactly. You got to nail it coming out of the gate. Jason Graw, now you've been writing, do you see yourself writing a play? No, not right now. I guess my forte was fiction, but I found fiction to be so hard. I really liked writing the memoirs the best. You know, I like writing anything based on my life, and that was fun. And I have a lot of funny stories, and so I really enjoyed that. But I guess the fiction is what everybody really responded to. And the two things that I wrote that were fiction pieces were just huge hits in the class. And I, it was so much work. And I thought, oh, God, I don't want to have to do this. But I love reading memoirs. I, you know, I've just been reading all the memoirs right now. Of course, I've read Mary Rogers, and I know you have too. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, did you ever meet her? I did. I worked with her a lot, and I was over at her house for a couple huge parties um, because when I did A Grand Night for Singing, which was you know a review of Rogers and Hammerstein music on Broadway – she was there and it was at the same time as the 50th anniversary of Oklahoma. So there were so many events around town and I was there with Mary Rogers and Celeste home and our cast of a grand night for singing. 
you know, there were five of us and we would, you know, they'd cart us out and we'd do our little dog and pony show. But we did uh, concerts with the New Jersey Symphony, um, Mary, myself, Marilyn Horn and Barbara Cook, Mary Testa, Marty Vidnovic. And we would do these concerts all over and Mary hosted it. And, you know, I got to sing Younger Than Springtime and some really fun stuff. And she was a pistol. And that book captured her to a T. Yeah, I, I interviewed Jesse Green about it. I'm, I'm such a fan of his because of, of that book. He, he just, he nailed her voice so beautifully. Jason Graw, you actually had someone in your life for a long period of time who was another person that I wish I had met, and that's Jerry Herman. Was he exciting to be around, or was he just a really nice guy who worked hard? No, he was exciting to be around. He really was. He was always thinking. There was always there was always thought behind his eyes. There was always mischief behind his eyes. There was always love and uh, generosity there. Yeah, he was exciting to be around. He was an event, and you always wanted to bring your A game when you were around Jerry Herman. And uh, he made you feel great. That was one of his greatest gifts. And that's what Faith and I talk about in our show. She's work, got to work with him a lot. And, uh, you know, I really did a lot of work with him um, since 2000. Uh, and I was on his PBS special. And uh, it, I just, it was like probably the greatest gift that I could have had in my career to get to do so much with him. But yeah, he was... He was amazing. But what, what I was about to say was that he was so generous. When you would sing his songs, he made you feel like, you know, you did it in a way that he'd never heard the song sung before. And he just was so supportive because I've certainly been around songwriters that are so terrified that you're going to ruin their material, <laughs> you know, and Jerry just made you feel great. And that's the way to do it. That's the way to make a singer feel really good and to bring their best work possible. His last big show was 1987, and yet he lived another 25 years. Was he working on several shows? Because after that, all we have is Miss Spectacular and Mrs. Santa Claus. Yeah, I know. Isn't that a shame? They were working on revivals. You know, they did the big Hello, Dolly revival, which was magnificent. I thought it was great. We did this tour, Hello, Jerry that we traveled the country with. And now I'm doing, I do symphony gigs called the Jerry Herman Legacy Concert. And he cast this, you know, a few years ago. And uh, he put it together, me and Clea Blackhurst and Debbie Gravett and Ron Raines and Scott Coulter. And um, we sing with symphonies and with uh, combos. And we were just at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center a week and a half ago, actually doing the show. You know, he has a scholarship fund he was very interested in students and spreading the you know musical theater history and the legacy of him and of helping students out and so every place we go since we've been doing this in 2000 we do classes master classes and whoever we feel is the strongest student or students uh would get a scholarship that Jerry Herman's estate would pay for and he just loved helping them. He, it meant a lot to him. So that's kind of where he was putting all his focus was in uh, education and getting his material out there and nurturing young people. 
unfortunately, and this is, you know, well known, you know, he was one of the early cases of HIV. And so Jerry spent a good amount of his life fighting for it. And that all started happening in the 80s when you stopped hearing, you know, new shows coming out of him because he was fighting for his life. And, you know, that took a lot of energy. And I have no doubt that zapped his creative fire. Jason Grah, uh, you're doing a number of shows over the course of the next several months, cabaret shows and so on. What have you got in the works, not just for the next four months, but say in the next year? Well, I continue to do these Jerry Herman Symphony gigs. The aforementioned Jerry Herman Symphony gigs uh, will be in uh, Long Island. And I'm going to uh, I'm going to New York City in July to do 54 Below, my show Grottest Hits, the sequel, which I'm very excited about. And uh, I have a lot of gigs right now. And I have to tell you this. Well, there's two things. I'm going to the O'Neill Theater Festival. They have a, in the summer the Cabaret Festival. Festival. And so I'm going to be doing my show there with some very fancy, fun people, Betty Buckley and Linda Lavin and Billy Stritch and Alton White and uh, John McDaniel and Natalie Douglas. I'm very, very excited about that. And that'll be in August. But, you know, the main stuff that's going on right now, I'm singing at all these memorials. There's just been a lot of, I've produced two memorials in the last month. And then I will have sung in five memorials by the end of next month. That's really been very depressing, but it's also wonderful to be able to celebrate people's lives. You know, we're reaching an age where they're starting to die around us and there's nothing you can do other than celebrate their lives. No, it's, uh, it's really uh, been, um, shattering actually what's been happening i i don't know it's been it's been very strange there's been a lot of a lot of loss and uh i don't know if it had to do with you know covid and the quarantine or whatever but um i know we have to be grateful for every day and i am and i'm grateful for you richard walinski you've been listening to an interview with actor singer entertainer jason Grah. feedback on this and other radio walinski podcasts is appreciated you can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>